What are the three main topics that have got real estate talking right now? I put that to Jalil's Head of Research for Australasia, Andrew Ballantyne, who is easily one of the industry's most respected commentators. I tore him away from his hectic calendar of events and presentations to share his observations on the office, built to rent or multifamily and industrial sectors. I'm Rebecca Kent, host of this JLL Perspectives podcast. Welcome back, Andrew, to our Perspectives podcast. You spend your time day in, day out making presentations to clients, industry peers and colleagues. And we've also released our Q1 figures for 2023 as well. Maybe you can shed some light on what some of the big talking points have been. Sure. I think the three main stories when I look across the market at the moment are office leasing market resilience, uh, industrial and logistics rental growth that continues to be at phenomenal levels. And not from our statistics, but what we saw in the announcement from the National Cabinet that there will be a change in the MIT structure as it relates to BTR projects, so going from 30 to 15%. So just to clarify, what's MIT? So it's Managed Investment Trust, and it's a tax that you pay as an offshore investor on having your investments through that vehicle. All right. We'll definitely touch on all those points throughout this conversation. How did Q1 or how did the first three months of this year pan out? Is it what we expected? I think what we've seen in the office sector from the leasing market is it has continued to remain fairly resilient. If you look at the numbers we put out there, we recorded 43,000 square metres of net absorption. So that's positive demand. That's across Australia. Across Australian CBD office markets. And if you look over the last 12 months, it was 124,000. So it was below the trend that we saw for demand pre-COVID, but it's still a positive result. And ultimately, a positive result shows us that organisations have been growing headcount and it has translated into positive net absorption. If you look at some other mature economies, you're not seeing this level of strength in the office leasing market that we are here in Australia. So you talk about headcount there, that presumably correlates with fairly strong um, employment rate too across the country. Yep. The labour market has been very strong uh, over the past 12 to 15 months. There are some signs that it is slowing slightly at the moment. If you look at the lead indicators around job advertisement surveys, they've come off their most recent peaks, but they're still at fairly elevated levels. And most organisations that you speak to have have pulled back their recruitment plans, but they're still looking to attract and retain knowledge workers that can help grow their business over the medium to longer term. And is that across um, most industries or are there some sectors, like for example, the tech sector? I know there's been a lot of commentary about. Yep. Look, the tech sector, and I think you've got to be careful with the tech sector that it is very broad and diverse. And what we've essentially seen is those NASDAQ listed companies uh, whose footprint is a lot smaller in Australia than what you see in New York and San Francisco, uh, looking to rationalise their workforce at the moment. If you look at the headcount growth that they've had over the past three to four years, it's been phenomenal. So it's only actually bringing them back to where they were 18 months ago in terms of overall headcount growth. So we still see, well, there's volatility in that sector at the moment. We still see that as a, a growth trajectory over the medium to longer term. Is there much difference sort of decision-making about offices with big global companies, with HQs, say, in the Northern Hemisphere yep. or in, in the Singapores and the Hong Kongs of this world compared to the domestic organisations? I think you need to look at it as kind of Asia-Pacific be the rest of the world. 
So in the Asia-Pacific region, we're still seeing positive economic growth across most mature economies. If you look at Australia, most economists expect that our GDP will grow by around 1.8% this year. So it's not the trend growth of 2.7 to 3, but it's still a positive figure. When you look at Western Europe and North America, you're clearly seeing economies slowing. You're clearly seeing risk of recession being greater there. And for those organizations that are headquartered in the US, they are certainly becoming a little more conscious in their decision-making, and you are certainly seeing some delays in that overall decision-making, whereas domestic organizations tend to be a, a lot more quicker in terms of when they're making real estate decisions at the moment. Yeah, okay. So you sound positive and optimistic about the office market and the, you know, the positive net, net absorption there obviously supports that. Does perception out there align with what the figures are telling us? Oh, look, I mean, if you, if you only sourced your information on the office market from social media, you could have a whole diverse range of views out there because there are a lot of different commentary around how office space is going to be used moving forward. And we are certainly big subscribers to flexibility, but we're also big subscribers at looking at the actual numbers. And the numbers, as I said, are, are below trend from a pre-COVID, but they're certainly not negative at the moment. The other big trend that you see in the numbers is the demand for higher quality assets. So if you take Sydney and Melbourne in particular, there is a significant divergence over the past two years for net absorption for prime grade assets versus secondary. So a very strong result for prime, a very negative result for secondary grade assets. So that ultimately shows that organizations are wanting to move into better and higher quality real estate. If you look at the US statistics, and as I said, they are a little softer than our own, you do see similar observations. So they tend to look at net absorption by building age cohort. And since the onset of COVID, it has been negative for every single cohort with the exception of those assets constructed since 2015. So it's very much a new story. In Australia, we argue it's not just a new story, it's a quality story. So we've seen some buildings that were constructed in the late 80s and early 90s continue to invest CapEx, continue to uh, invest in the characteristics that organizations want and continue to see quite strong leasing success. So what are some of the features of, of these repositioned um, and prime grade buildings that we're seeing? Look, there's a, there's a combination. So there's obviously the, the characteristics of the asset itself. So what does that offer in terms of the, the entry statement in the lobby what does it offer in terms of the, the end of trip and the broader wellness offering within the building? But then you can also go into the, the design of the workplace by the organizations and the consultants themselves. And we've clearly moved to a model where, and having moved into a new building here at 180 George Street, the number of people that say to me, it feels like sitting in the lobby of a hotel on our, on our level 27 you know, client-facing floor the type of furnishings we have, the atmosphere that we have. We've also got uh, wellness areas. Uh, we've got prayer rooms. Uh, we've got a very big social hub. And I think that's one of the aspects that people really like is that social aspect of the workplace. So you really need to consider what you actually have within your workplace design that encourages that socialization and essentially encourages the bump factor because that's where you actually... you catch up with a colleague unexpectedly, you have a brief discussion and then you go away with one or two new ideas. And ultimately what all organizations are trying to do at the moment is to try and be productive and innovative. And if you look at the statistics, they've not been very good recently. 
just to be clear, that's 180 George Street in Sydney. And yes. We're right by the Circular Quay area with yep. wonderful views over the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. Pretty magical. And do you see any emerging trends in terms of office features abroad that we might see here or emerging generally anywhere? It's actually interesting. A lot of people look at Australia for guidance. So a number of clients that I speak to tend to view Australia as being world leaders in terms of how we actually design, construct and manage commercial real estate. And I think there's a few reasons for that. The, the one that I start with is actually the E of ESG, so the environmental component. And we've had mandatory reporting in Australia for a long time. So due to that mandatory reporting and the visibility that we have around it, I would argue from the E perspective, our assets are world leading. What we're seeing at the moment is the S aspects of ESG. So those more social aspects. So there's two ways of looking at that. The first way is around how does an investor think about it from socially aware investment? And then the second part is what are you actually doing or providing for the workforce? So even just stepping away from the office sector, we're starting to see big shifts in industrial and logistics around the S aspect. So a number of the new estates that we've seen being developed in Sydney and Melbourne actually have outdoor wellness and outdoor gym facilities. So that's part of the social and that's part of actually why organizations want to be in those estates because it actually helps with their attraction and retention of the type of workers they're trying to, to bring into their business. Okay, fantastic. I think we should move on to our second major trend, build to rent. Yep. First of all, it'd be great if you could explain what build to rent is. It's called multifamily in the States. It's known as that. So maybe yep. just explain and then what we're seeing there. So essentially, I mean, built to rent is a, a, a term that's also used in the UK. So the UK and Australia use built to rent. And as you correctly said, in the US, they use multifamily. So ultimately, it is product, given it's a nascent asset class, it's product that's being developed, usually by a, a, a large developer and an institutional developer. And ultimately, what they do upon completion is they actually hold the product and they actually lease the individual units or apartments, uh, you know, to the, to the general sort of population. So what we've seen in the early wave of BTR projects in Australia is it's largely been orientated, in my opinion, more towards younger professionals. So that's certainly influenced in terms of the, the type of units that have been developed, but also the type of amenity that's actually been offered uh, through these projects. And so what are sort of the questions that our clients and, and colleagues are asking about BTR at the moment? Well, essentially, if you look at the US where the asset class is considered a core asset class, it's, it's, it forms a large part of a diversified portfolio for major real estate investors. So they actually view it as a sector with very low volatility. And ultimately, when you invest in real estate for core investors, that's what you're seeking. You're seeking exposure to, to assets or sectors with low volatility. So they're basically saying out of North America that I can invest in multifamily and also have exposure to the other core sectors of, of office, retail, logistics, and then the real estate alternatives. We're still calling BTR a real estate alternative in Australia, but it's actually a mainstream asset class in the US. So ultimately, the part of the role that BTR is playing in Australia is we have very low residential vacancy rates. You know, if you look at our population projections, they're, they're quite strong for a mature economy. And even on the most recent migration statistics, we saw 400,000 arrivals into Australia up to June 2022. Unfortunately, that's the latest numbers. They were still influenced by COVID. 
But if you actually look at where we were pre-COVID, we were only at 550. So we're almost back to where we were in terms of inbound migration. So that certainly supports the population growth story that we're seeing here in Australia. And if you look at any market pretty much across this whole country at the moment, you see residential vacancy rates, you know, somewhere between zero and 3%. It is extremely tight. So what's the, um, and we touched on this at the beginning, but what's the the regulatory framework around build to rent? Because I understand that that is um, one of the challenges with the sector moving into uh, an institutional or core asset class, is that right? Yeah, it's essentially, so a lot of people look at it as, as a challenge and say the withholding tax on the MIT structure is higher for build to rent than commercial hotels and student accommodation. So ultimately what um, the Property Council and other groups have advocated is it should be comparable given the type of product that it is. So ultimately what it does through this change in the MIT structure, it actually makes it just a level playing field with those other sectors. So the MIT structure is currently the same now between student accommodation, hotels, other commercial property and BTR as of the 1st of July 2024. So what sort of activity have we been seeing? We have seen quite strong activity in Melbourne in particular, uh, in the Melbourne CBD. So if you look at the the build-to-rent development pipeline, it is very concentrated towards Melbourne, followed more so by uh, Queensland and and then New South Wales. And part of the challenge in New South Wales has been, especially for CBD, has actually been site availability. We're seeing a number of build-to-rent projects in in Parramatta, simply due to its position as the geographical centre of Sydney. Uh, But also there's been site availability. But Parramatta, over a period of time, has seen its demographics change. And if you look at educational attainment from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you know, the city of Parramatta has been one of the strongest growth areas for people that actually hold a bachelor's degree. So that sort of, again, is influencing my thinking at the moment that most of the product that is being developed has ultimately been orientated towards uh, professionals in their 20s, early 30s. Uh, What I think is going to be interesting is how the sector evolves. And if you look at the US, you see product that is targeted more towards downsizers. So, you know, people that have potentially had their families and then actually looking to have a different experience and you, ha- you see product that's targeted towards people over 45 or 50 in the US. You also get a, you get product which is not the conventional tower product. They call them sort of garden variety. So it's ultimately, you know, detached dwellings or townhouses, but it's still part of a multifamily product. So what I'm really interested to see in Australia as we move through this evolution is actually the the change in the type of product offering or the evolution in the type of product offering that actually targets different demographic cohorts. And as you say, we've got a ridiculously tight housing market. So some more BTR developments would go um, a huge way towards alleviating that, presumably. It's it's part of the solution. It's not the only part of the solution. Uh, So I think Australia more broadly has certainly looked at the housing shortage that we currently have. We still have ambitions to be a high population growth economy. Uh, We ultimately benefit from the import of of human capital in terms of how we've grown our economy over a period of time. And I think what's interesting is to actually see the shift in demographics. Because one of the stories that got missed pre-COVID was was essentially the rise of Indian migration. 
And it was actually at a similar level to what we see from China just before COVID. And it's actually rebounded very quickly, uh, given given some of the COVID restrictions that we saw in China that, that lasted longer, that have now been lifted. So I think that's quite interesting to look forward in terms of what type of product do we see Indian migrants ultimately looking for. The, the whole residential sector to me is going to be fascinating, led by what we see in terms of the shift in migration patterns, but also having different product types with, with build to rent. I feel like there's conversations around build to rent really starting to build momentum that have been happening for many, many years. So if we can look at the momentum compared to previous years, where is it at at the moment? Well, I think given we just got this announcement fairly recently, that has certainly changed sentiment from certain groups towards the sector. Because one of the challenges that a number of groups had is essentially saying to us that this is a nascent asset class. And when you generally invest into an nascent asset class, either through development or the stabilized product, you should get an additional risk premium. It's actually priced for maturity. So now through this change in the MIT structure, that should actually help your return hurdles, uh, your returns being slightly higher. Yep. Okay. Let's move on to the third discussion point, industrial and logistics. Is it still the golden child of the real estate sector? I think it's fair to say it is still very much the golden child of the real estate sector. So as you know, through the COVID period, we saw very strong occupier demand you know, for a number of reasons. Uh, clearly, the growth in online retail was, was one reason, but we always said that was only one ingredient. We were seeing strong demand from F&B. We were seeing strong demand from uh, discretionary retailers. We're seeing strong demand from 3PLs. Even the manufacturing sector, not traditional manufacturing, but more import and assembly, and even uh, a positive impact from the broader health sector as well. So there are a number of different sectors that were ultimately driving the demand side of the equation. And that's part of the reason we've seen the vacancy rates trend down to you know, pretty much zero in most markets. There's very, very limited availability. And when you have vacancy at this sort of level, you tend to get very strong rental growth. And when you look at some of the numbers that we published over the last 12 months, in Sydney's outer central west, we're seeing market rents were up 40%. It was a little little more uh, sedate in Melbourne. It was only 25% in the <laughs> southeast and 30% in the west. And poor old Brisbane was only a, a very modest 16% year-on-year oh year rental growth. So you can see the types of numbers that we're seeing now, what's interesting about the sector is this rental growth that we're seeing at the moment creates a tailwind. So if you assume that you were an occupier that signed up 12 months ago to a five-year lease, you would have fixed indexation in the leases. We estimate that that, that lease is now going to be under-rented by as much as 60% when it expires in 2024. So the rental growth story is we're very much talking about the marginal transaction, but it actually takes time to flow through the broader sector uh, because ultimately it's captured by owners and investors when those leases actually expire. I made a sharp intake of breath every percentage um, you, you said there. So is that sustainable for occupiers? I mean, not all, but I presumably many are being hit by inflationary pressures, cost yep. pressures and that sort of thing. What are we seeing? Look, I mean, the, your rent is a reasonably small proportion of your, your overall sort of operating expense. And it differs by, you know, different industry sectors and different occupiers. 
look, clearly growth of 40% per annum is, is not going to be sustainable over the, over the longer period of time. So what our expectations is, is that this year, 2023, will still be a very strong year. And then we'll start to see more of a normalization in those growth rates around 24, 25. The reason we don't see a significant market correction in rents is there's fairly limited available zoned land at the moment. So there's a, there's a process in terms of how supply comes through. There has to be ultimately um, land availability. That land has to be zoned. It has to be serviced. And there's, there's a timeline in terms of that overall journey. And when you look at the activity that we've seen over the last few years, it's, it's consumed a lot of that serviceable land and it hasn't been getting replenished, for want of a better word, at a rate that has met occupier demand. So Yes, it will come, but it, there is a lag in terms of identifying and then having land rezoned. So is it um, the rezoning of land, the infrastructure and supply that is ultimately going to create a sort of equilibrium then in the market? Over, over the longer term, yes. So you clearly, you did touch on the fact that, you know, some businesses would be doing it, doing it tough. And I think what you will see through this year is you will see an increase in the business failure rate. But a slight increase in the business failure rate isn't going to create significant opportunity for, for other occupiers. You're really going to be dealing with a handful. Uh, so it's not going to be enough to actually shift the overall market vacancy statistic in any meaningful way. Ultimately, what is required is a, a more meaningful supply response. And there's, there's a delay. Outside of Brisbane, there's a reasonable development pipeline in Brisbane. But when you look at Sydney in particular, it's, it's very modest over the, the next few years up until the essentially the, the Sydney airport and the, the land availability around that. We talked about the tenants. Look, landlords and owners have pressures as well, right, that, yep. that, they, are, that they are facing. Can you maybe go into some of those pressures? Well, well ultimately, what a lot of investors are thinking about more broadly is the fact that we have been in a higher inflation environment and that higher inflation environment has ultimately led to a shift in monetary policy in Australia. Uh, and we've seen the, the official cash rate move higher. We've seen bond yields move out. So we're going through a period where ultimately investors are considering how they price assets in a higher interest rate environment. So we call it the price discovery journey that we're going through at the moment. And we're going through that journey at the moment to to essentially see what are the return hurdles for, for real estate and, and a higher interest rate environment than where we were in the COVID period and, and just before. Also being in a higher interest rate environment, a number of uh, owners are clearly going to have refinancing come through uh, on their portfolio and their overall costs of, of refinancing are going to be higher than, than where they were. So that has an impact on their, their equity IRRs. Okay, great to touch on those three topics with you, Andrew. Thank you. We're going to catch up again for the next quarter. But look, if you could describe what we see um, coming over the next, say, six months or so, what would you say? So we touched on it right at the start of the discussion. We are very fortunate to be here in Australia where we're actually debating what level of economic growth we're going to have rather than whether or not we're going to have economic growth. Now, we're certainly not naive. As economies slow, it does have an impact on the demand for space, whether that be office, whether that be industrial logistics, whether that be retail. So if you look at the office sector, we have actually revised down our net absorption or demand forecasts for you know, Sydney and Melbourne in particular through the course of this year. 
But we have also been making some adjustments to our supply forecasts as well. And we've been making those adjustments because simply construction costs are significantly higher, but also the cap rate that developers can apply to feasibilities has moved out. So the economic rent that they require to make that project stacked up has got higher. So as a result, we have actually scaled back the probability of some of our development pipeline, which will lead to in Sydney CBD in particular, a significant reduction on our expectations over that 25 and 26 period. Thanks very much and we'll speak again soon. Thank you. That was Andrew Ballantyne, Head of Research across Australasia for JLL. I'm Rebecca Kent. Thank you for listening to JLL's Perspectives podcast. Do add this podcast to your favourites on your preferred listening app so you don't miss our next episode.